But what I want to talk about is two things. This allows me to talk about two things I like to talk about. And one is the concept of spiritual upgrades. You, you, we all know what an upgrade is. So maybe uh, one time you got a job promotion or you, uh, you traded in sometime that old 1999 uh, Dodge for a, I don't know, 2010 Corolla. And that was awesome. Or you went from dial-up to broadband or you went from flip phone to iPhone, whatever. You know, you went from a... Uh, I don't know, you dumped a loser boyfriend and you upgraded. We all know what an upgrade is. There are spiritual upgrades as well. The second thing I want to uh, tell you about is I have the meaning of life. I know what the meaning of life is. So uh, you didn't count on that. That's worth the price of admission to the leaping lizard right there to get the meaning of life. So, but the biggest reason to talk about the kingdom of God is because Jesus talked about it a lot, right? Jesus talked a lot about it. It must be pretty important. I think it's over a hundred times in the New Testament that the kingdom of God or kingdom kingdom of heaven, those are interchangeable, uh, appears. Jesus spent a huge amount of his time announcing the kingdom of God, even saying, hey, it's right now. It's in your midst right here. And even more, what comes across more clearly in the New Testament is this iconoclastic clash of kingdoms, of two kingdoms in particular, as it's the kingdom of darkness, as it's referred to in the, in the New Testament, and the kingdom of God. And we read about these crazy power encounters throughout the Gospels, and particularly the book of Acts. Wow, I can feel the heat from this, <laughs> unless it's God. Something's going on. So let me, let me tell you about one of my early, early power encounters. So way back, way back in the day when dinosaurs ruled the earth, I was a musician playing in a uh, Christian rock band back when that was an oxymoron. And I was on the road for years. We starved to death. My wife supported me. Thank God. You know what a, uh, you know what a musician is that's not married? Homeless. So, so that was awesome. So we were doing this concert in Flagstaff, uh, and after the concert, I invited, Flagstaff was such a weird place. This was way back in the day. And I remember before the concert, we had some time off. So I went into like a normal Christian bookstore and there was just aisle after aisle after aisle of occult books. I thought, well, this is an interesting town. So after the concert, we would play through all our songs. And then at the end, one of us would tell our story about knowing Jesus and then invite people to say. So we saw lots and lots and lots of teenagers come to Christ through the years. But at this one, so people came, some kids came forward, we gathered them off backstage, put them in a little circle there, and I'm getting ready to pray for them, and all of a sudden, this woman, maybe in her early 30s, mid-30s, she comes uh, crashing into this circle of teenagers shouting obscenities and, and making fun of what she called religion. And their eyes, you know, got as big as saucers, and I pulled her aside and <laughs> I said, what's going on with you? And uh, there was a man with her who stood behind her. I'm not making any of this stuff up because you know how pastors make up stories. This one's all true. And there was this guy standing behind her who just smiled the entire time. Thinking, well, that's creepy. And she told me that she had tried religion. It's nothing but a blankety-blank joke. So there you go, blankety And she told me she was buzzed on coke that very minute. So take that. And uh, so you can take your blankety-blank religion and shove it up your blankety-blank. So I asked her, if I, can I just pray for you? And she said, you can blankety-blank do whatever you want. And I thought, maybe that'll just shut her up for a moment while I figure out what to do. Because this is kind of new territory, right? 
And uh, so I just said, God, in the name of Jesus, come and touch this woman. And boom, she hit the floor cold like a bag of rocks, just out. And uh, I, you know, smiley guy looked at me and then looked at her and then looked at me. And these kids, they're like this, like this is not your average mosh pit. Something's going on here. And uh, my first thought was, dang, Jesus, you killed her. And this is really bad PR for a Christian rock band. So, uh, so I thought I'll just pray over her, and maybe after a minute, maybe two minutes, which seems like an eternity when you think someone's dead, she jumps up to her feet and runs out of the auditorium as fast as she could go with Smiley Guy running behind her. And I'm kind of running after them, doing a little post-counseling cleanup kind of thing. Hey, do you know any churches in the city? Whatever. And she was gone. She was out of there. And like she had seen a ghost. And I'm like, wow, this, this stuff is pretty powerful. This is something. And what I was experiencing was a clash of these kingdoms. And here's where it gets weird. Weirder. So when John the Apostle, you know, was in his old age, he was following, you know, Jesus when he was young, and uh, he was exiled to this rocky little island on the Aegean Sea because of his faith, because he wouldn't stop talking about Jesus. And toward the end of his life, he wrote, or the part of the community he was, uh, wrote the little letter we call First John in the New Testament. And tucked inside that remarkable little letter is one verse that can absolutely rock you. And he gives, he gives the reason why Jesus came to earth. Now, you know, to save the world, to do this, that. But he puts a whole different slant on it. And John says, he says, the reason why the Son of God came, why he appeared, was to destroy the devil's work. Wow. So what John is alluding to here is the idea that this world is, is been, has been oppressed by a spiritual mafia-like uh, force, a power called the accuser, or Satan, or Hasatan in Hebrew, meaning uh, adversary, meaning accuser. A couple of chapters later, he writes this stunning verse. He says, the whole world lies in the grip of this evil one. Hmm. It's been in rebellion for millennia. You know. So it's interesting to note that in the temptation of Jesus, at one point Satan shows Jesus all the kingdoms of this world, however that, that works, and he says, frankly, hey, it's been given to me, and I can give it to whomever I wish, so worship me, and this can all be yours. Right? And oddly enough, Jesus doesn't argue with him about ownership. <laughs> He just says simply, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Get out of here. Worship belongs to God only. And shuts that down. So when Jesus appeared, there's this clash of, of kingdoms, light against darkness, good against evil, and so forth. And he came to bring the kingdom of God against the kingdom of darkness. That's why you see this explosion of power encounters in the Gospels and in the book of Acts with Jesus and his apostles confronting that because something new has been inaugurated, the kingdom of God. So when Jesus tried to describe this kingdom, he, he used a lot of analogies and, and uh, parables, and it was still really muddy to the disciples, as if 
this is really hard to explain what this is. But it was important that his followers get a glimpse of what was being rolled out and how different, radically different and unexpected this would be. This new kingdom was very different than what they expected, kind of their political overthrow and us in power again view. And perhaps even more obtuse to us now as even then. And it seemed evident that Jesus wanted his disciples to not just talk about the kingdom, but to experience it, to pray for its breaking in, to see it manifested in what would be established as the church, to see followers of Jesus experience that, and he was going to leave this ministry with them. As a matter of fact, when he gave them the model of prayer, when they said, hey, hey, Jesus, could you teach us to pray the way you do? There's something different about you. And he taught them what we now call the Lord's Prayer. One of the first lines which you sang today was basically this, Father, I want your kingdom to come so that may what's done in, you know, on, may what you want done on this planet happen the same way that it is, always is in that transrational dimension that you call heaven. So if we borrow from earthly metaphors, a kingdom is simply the territory where a king and his or her servants rule and exert authority and power. That's what an earthly kingdom is, right? So here's the problem. Apparently, apparently it's hard for us uh, carbon-based bipeds to understand what real authority and power is. But regardless of how... Uh, how tricky these parables of the kingdom are, or how perhaps cloudy our understanding of what the kingdom is, one thing is clear from the message of Jesus. Even if he couldn't get them to understand how this kingdom looked and how it operated, it was this that he had over and over. It's really valuable. This kingdom is really valuable. So it seems as though the only way that Jesus could help his disciples and us understand what the kingdom of God was like was to at least get us to see how valuable it was, even if we were incapable of really understanding what life in the Father's kingdom is like. It must have been as difficult for him to explain that to his disciples and therefore to us as it is trying to describe passionate, intimate sexual love to a four-year-old. Can you imagine that? And so Jesus resorted to parables that have the kingdom of God as something of such great value, even if you don't understand it, of such great value that people were willing to jettison everything they owned to get it. A treasure in a field or a pearl of such great price that a merchant or a salesperson would do anything to get it, that everything they had was worth trading it away to get it to upgrade. They would sell everything for this upgrade. So what Jesus was doing in these parables was deeper than descriptions of what the kingdom of God was like. That was hard enough. He, in trying to describe how valuable this kingdom is, he was taking them into deeper waters because what he was really getting at is the biggest question of the universe. What is the meaning of life? So let me explain. I believe that at the, at the core of our lives is our search for something of value, something valuable, 
something of worth, something of significance, something of value. So we pursue relationships and careers and material success and power and control because we think obtaining these things of value will fulfill us and give us a sense of meaning, of worth, of reason to exist. The problem is, how do we know what's really valuable? It's like those shows where people drag stuff out of their attics and take them to some antiques expert, and they say, oh, this is worth $3,000, right? And this is, this is awesome. Someone with authoritative expertise who can tell you what the true value is. Now, let's personalize this. The way you measure what is really valuable in life is by asking yourself a really simple question. This is so easy. It is... What are you willing to pay for it? In the parable of a hidden treasure or the pearl of great value, they sold everything they had to get it simply because it was worth more than everything they had. In other words, they were upgrading. They were trading up. And so the question for us is, have we discovered the one thing in life that is worth giving everything up for? And that really takes some thought. It's not easy, honestly. Now let's dig even deeper here because what is the one thing that's worth giving up your life for? Because if you help remove any hint of selfishness or self-gain and something that you want to trade up or upgrade to as a motivational factor, when you have that answer, you are beginning to discover the meaning of life. And that's simple. I mean, Think about this. God has designed your soul in such a way that, that you are the most fulfilled when that which you value is actually something of real value. And, and here's the problem. Sometimes what we think is actually valuable really isn't. We haven't gone to the antiques expert with this thing we drug out of our attic. It's, it might just be uh, pyrite. It might be fool's gold. Pyrite looks like the real thing. It sparkles like gold. It looks like the deal. And when prospectors out west of the 1800s dragged that out of the hills and took it to barter to sell, they found out it wasn't worth the price of beans. And so, so we find ourselves unfulfilled when we think we have gold, when we actually have pyrite, right? Fool's gold. And for some of us, fool's gold might be whatever, material success, might be recognition, might be being noticed, it might be the most YouTube followers, it might be the center of attention. For some of us, it may be power. For some of us, it might be control. We could be really obsessive about this pyrite and, and hurt each other to get it because it looks so dang good. The zeitgeist of this world, that, that is the spirit of this age, has a way of masquerading value, and it's really adept at drawing our attention to valueless things for us to invest our time and money and resources and energy into. Madison Avenue is really good with this. There's a reason why during the Super Bowl, there is a full hour of commercials. And, and, and it's why they cost about $180,000 per second. Right. Madison Avenue is really good. Now, look at the flip side of this. How, ma how many of you have a child, at least one child? Okay, a whole lot of you that want to admit it. You, you, you can probably remember 
the birth or adoption day of your first child really well. Because in that, that tiny little bundle of life, you witnessed the spark of value. You know? And you made a promise that you would lay your life down. You, 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 would, you would do anything for this little thing. That was a sense of real fulfillment because you placed value on something that actually had real value as an image bearer of God. You sacrificed and you made promises to yourself while little uh, Brittany grew up. And then when she became a teenager, you made another promise to yourself that if she said whatever one more time, you would not kill her. And, but that's a message for another time. We, we go through life discovering all kinds of different things that are worth giving up parts of ourselves, our own lives, for. And when those things actually have true value, our lives carry a sense of meaning. Most parents make all kinds of personal sacrifices for their kids. When I was growing up, I wanted, I, 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 I wanted to play music so bad that I would bang on boxes to make beats. And my dad went out and sold an old motorboat of his to buy me a used set of drums. In some ways, that set a course for my life or a trajectory or a fascination in music that has been enriching for me. And so in some ways, we trade up on these things of value, we upgrade. You go to King's Island, you play the little game, you win a little stuffed minion, and you can play it again to get a little larger minion, and then by the time you leave, you've got a minion the size of a Volkswagen that you're dragging out to your car, right? You trade up for something that you think has more value. For instance, you may have made a, a lot of personal sacrifices to pursue a career that you wanted, maybe for altruistic reasons that you wanted to provide for your family. But then at some point, you discover that it takes a lot of time away from your family and from your kids, and it's not worth that particular career. So you downsize, and you take a lesser paying job, you know, a less lucrative job in order to spend more time with them, and you have upgraded, you have traded up in value, you traded success or some perceived goal that, that meant value to you for time, which is very valuable, and with people, which is invaluable. And people are always more valuable than things, always. So Jesus talked about this upgrade to understand the kingdom like this. In Mark 10, Jesus says, he says, I tell you the truth, all those who have left houses, brothers, sister, mother, father, children, or farms for me and for the kingdom, for the good news, will get more than they left. Because here in this world, they will have a hundred times more homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields. And with those things, they will also suffer for their belief. But in the age that is coming, they will have life forever. And not just meaning year after year, but zoe, the abundant life, the real life. And he's talking about a serious upgrade here. The kingdom of God is worth the perceived loss of things of great value to us. They, you know, homes and businesses, even family. And one day Jesus shocked everyone with this outrageous challenge. And he makes this statement that you think, he's either a megalomaniac or he's crazy or whatever. And he says this, he turns to a crowd of people and he says, 
Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even life itself, cannot be my disciple. <laughs> you never hear pastors preach on that one. Was he telling people to start hating their families, their mother, their father, their parents? Of course not. Jesus knew the law. He said he came to fulfill the law, and the, and the fifth commandment says to honor your father and your mother. Jesus was talking in a comparative sense, comparing those things that have real value. This is a spiritual upgrade. Even life itself, upgrade, trade up to a dynamic relationship with him and his kingdom. That is what he's saying. In contrast to your, to your love for him, everything else is worth leaving behind. And we are again trading up those things that we treasure as most valuable, and rightly so, for something that is far surpassing any riches we might know. So if we could see the real value of this place called the kingdom of God, if we could see this pearl of great value, this hidden treasure in the field, if we could see its true worth, we would chase after it and we would find our hearts there. It's where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. Not where your heart is, that's where your treasure is. Jesus even tried to explain the practicality of this when he said, seek the kingdom first and his righteousness and everything you need on this planet you'll have. It'll be yours, right? It'll be given to you. So how are we really to understand this value? How are we to understand truly the worth? Well, that's part of the mystery of the kingdom of God. And it's revelatory in nature. It requires what Kierkegaard, that, that Kierkegaard said, the quality leap uh, of qualitative leap of faith, right? This is the hardest thing to grasp. But Think about this. What caused all of the disciples to risk their life? Most of them dying uh, excruciating, horribly painful executions for something they seemed to think had so much value. And there has to be a reason behind that. And why 2,000 years later, billions and billions of people have entrusted their lives to Jesus and most of the world splits history before and after his birth, right? What's more, because the first century Christians traded up everything, everything for the sake of the kingdom, you are sitting here in the leaping lizard today. The reason they would risk that is because they found the pearl of great value, the treasure in a field that was worth trading everything else for. And I'll tell you one more thing and then I'm done. I've discovered, I've discovered something that, that has made living in the kingdom of God worth trading everything for. And I didn't get this until years after following Jesus. The longer that I followed him, the more I realized that God really did design us. He really knows our wiring better than we do. That he knows exactly what motivates you. Exactly. What ignites, you know, our inner fuel. He knows what fires my jets better than anyone and certainly better than I do. Hands down. And what that means, it requires humility on our part. That we are in need of something greater, something smarter than ourselves to show us what we actually need 
in life and that we were wired to be passionately involved with the king and his kingdom. So as we give ourselves over to the kingship of Jesus, we begin to run on the fuel of the Spirit, and that is high-octane stuff. There's nothing else on this planet like it, because believe me, I would have found it among the pharmaceuticals out there before I came to Jesus. That's why, as a Christian, you're always going to be challenged in your day-to-day decisions. Always, for the rest of your life, get used to it. Yeah. To, to make decisions that trade up for the pearl. For instance, what if we didn't see temptation as a chance to sin, but an opportunity? What if we saw it as an opportunity, rather, to decide for Jesus and his kingdom instead? What a paradigm shift that would be in the way we think about the decisions that we make day in and day out. There's a paradigm shift in the way we think about self Focusness, self-centeredness. What's keeping us, you and me, from trading up? What's keeping you and me from an upgrade? What will you and me let go of to embrace the kingdom of God? Maybe it's time, you know, for me or you to rediscover the value of the pearl, the treasure of the kingdom. But here's my closing thought, and here's the kicker, and here's where you enter the matrix, where everything is kind of turned upside down, right? Even though life in the kingdom is the treasure we are to discover, to upgrade to, for God, you are the pearl of great price. You, you were worth trading everything for. Even his own life. You are the most valuable thing in his kingdom. Why would he not want us to be like him? And that's, what's, that's what makes Christianity unique among the pantheon of religions, and it makes Jesus king of kings and lord of lords. Let's pray. So, Father, you... Uh, You have made Jesus the king of the universe. You traded everything for us. I have have a hard time seeing that as an upgrade, but God, you did it. And so, Father, please help us understand. Give us that revelatory moment where maybe we don't fully get what the kingdom of God is, the one thing we do know. It's valuable, and it's worth trading everything for, everything. And so, God, I pray right now that you would cause us to kind of just ruminate on that. Father, you, would you uh, expose in my heart right now in this moment, in all of our hearts, what is the one thing that I've been afraid to trade up for that upgrade? What's the one thing that I'm white-knuckled holding on to? What's behind that, God? God, reveal the value of this kingdom. 
whom your, 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 your servant Paul said, it's not fancy talk. The kingdom is about a life of power. So come, Lord. Come. Come in your power right now, Father. Come, Holy Spirit, and do your work here.